My name's Andrew, one of the pastors here, and um, like Sam was just telling you, we're a community following Jesus together, um, and this is how we define ourselves. We are followers of Jesus, and we want to become more like him and do the things that Jesus did, and we believe everything that we're doing here this morning from our moments of prayer, before you ever got here, by the way, and uh, also just the times uh, of singing and times uh, where we celebrate the bread and the cup, and then also the time where we celebrate the word of God. It all instructs and it all shapes us into the image of Jesus, and there's so much more, which is why uh, Riverbend at Night is something that has been on my heart for, for, for quite honestly years now, and we finally get to do it starting this summer, so please come and join us for that. Um, I know you guys all just like got comfortable and got a seat, but could you please jump back up one more time, and we're going to have a reading from the scripture. Uh, so we're in this uh, study on the book of Galatians. Uh, we have been for the last couple of months. Uh, some of you, if you haven't been here, uh, you might need some catching up to do. So you can go back and listen to the podcast. You can also kind of hang with us here. I'll do my best to kind of bring you up to speed. Um, starts with this. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to, and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for your word, and we ask that today you would do that special thing that only you can do um, by giving animation and life and power to these words on the screen behind me. And God, would you just by your spirit unite us around your vision and send us out in the power of your spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So the title of this message is God's Unbending Promise, and I want to detail that out for you. Um, To do that, though, let me tell a quick story. Just this last week, we wrapped something we do here at Riverbend called Alpha. It's 10 weeks of dinner conversations about faith and meaning, primarily for skeptics, people on the outside of the family of the faith, but want to explore what it means to follow Jesus. And so I was there the past 10 Tuesdays, and I made a bunch of friends, and it was really fun. By the way, thank you, huge thank you to those of you who are hosts and helpers. Man, you made uh, such a huge and massive difference. But I made a bunch of friends at Alpha, and um, last Tuesday, during our last session, um, one of the um, friends that I made at my table, she was like, hey, I just need to come clean about something. I, um, on the first week of Alpha, I went home and I Googled Alpha Course brainwashing because I was wondering if you guys were trying to like get in my head and brainwash me or something like that. And I was like, and she was like, you know, there's this whole subreddit that was all about it and everything, but I decided to come back because you guys seemed kind of good and real or whatever. And I'm so glad that I did. And we ended up uh, just having a good laugh over that because um, that's exactly what Alpha's for is for people who have big questions and maybe have some cynicism and skepticism, but over the course of several weeks, we just unfold the story of Jesus, and um, it's really powerful. Now she's like at a place where she wants to 
start coming here and uh, joining the community, which is pretty cool. So um, the way Alpha works is that every week there's a question, a question about faith, and then there's a video that sort of responds to that question, and then we finish it all up with like table discussion. And at the very end of the course, just this last week, uh, we covered the question, what about the church? What about the church? Which is obviously a, a hot topic of today, not necessarily for you, you're all here and excited to be here. Um, but for a lot of people, they don't understand the sacred ancient rhythm and they don't understand what the church is all about. So Nikki, who's the main teacher of Alpha, explained a bunch of things about like the beauty of the church, some of his own stories about the church, and then he even talks about the diversity in the church. And if you've been with us through the, the letter to the Galatians, or maybe you're a student of the Bible and you just know from your own reading of it that the, 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 the Bible, in particular Galatians, is all about the unity of the family under Christ, that despite everything that we might have that are, and, and do that might be different, and despite our different ethnic backgrounds and family of, cult, family of origin, culture, and everything, we are all one in Christ. Um, but also, what, which much to my like just sadness and everything else, Nikki also had to talk about the fact that it's no secret that the church is really, 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 really divided. And especially now. And um, he talked about how there's so much disagreement and infighting in the church. And I know why he had to say that. He kind of has to say that because, again, Alpha's meant for people who are maybe not Christians or maybe exploring faith. And in my experience, and I think those of you who've had a lot of conversation with people outside the family of faith will probably agree, fighting and disunity in the church is one of the top five, if not the biggest objection that people have about Christianity. We can't seem to get along, and that seems very inconsistent with the message that we say we believe. And this is what people, this is a major question that people have about the faith. And I think they're right. It is very inconsistent about the, uh, concerning the message um, that we believe. And Galatians is written to address what we're supposed to do with our disagreements and with our differences. How are we meant to actually move forward together if we are so different politically, ideologically, ethnically, and all of the rest? So back in the first century, also today, um, there was a lot of things like colonizing the church. For example, there were these kind of half-truths or these wrong ideas, but they were believable enough that they had begun to colonize and infiltrate. The first one was just, hey, let's make anyone who's a part of the minority culture who wants to become a part of the church just basically become like us. And that's kind of how things work in society, but it's not the way it's supposed to work in the family of God. And by what I mean is um, if there is a minority culture, for example, in the first century, the majority culture was the Jewish culture, and there were a lot of Gentiles and what was known in the first century as pagans who wanted to come into the church as well. And the, the way that the Jewish people were responding to that was, you know what, we're happy you're here and everything, but it would really, in order to belong to the family, you basically have to reject your culture, reject your family of origin, reject everything about yourself, basically, and just adopt our culture instead. 
And that poses a problem when you're talking about the gospel because Jesus gets the divine gospel. He says that the gospel is that Jesus is king and everyone who trusts in him is welcomed into the family of God regardless of how we might be different otherwise. The other wrong idea that they had, I think we have today too in our, in our churches, is we basically just go, you know what, unity is kind of too hard of a bar or too high of a bar for us to hit. So let's just put out two tables. This literally happened in the church of Galatia. Let's put out two tables. One group of people sits over here and the other group of people sits over there. We're too different. It's not really worth trying to kind of get everybody together. And this is the temptation that I think uh, a lot of churches have, including us. The temptation is, you know what? Unity is, is almost too high of a bar, so let's not go with what's ideal. Let's just kind of go with what's realistic. So we lower the bar to basically say, hey, you know what? We're so different, let's say, on the political spectrum. Or we're so different, like, ethnically. We come from such different cultures. Like, you come from Latin America, which is a very uh, celebratory amazing, loud, fun, vibrant culture. I come from a very stoic family culture that is filled with engineers and scientists, right? And so therefore, like it's, it, like, it's not as easy as a mix or a fit. But the reality is that what Jesus and Paul are saying, the New Testament clearly teaches that we are one family, not two. Or in the case of the evangelical tradition, 14,000. Back in the 16th century, there was one split between the, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants. And since then, there have been over 14,000 times where the church has been like, oh, we can't actually get along with you, so goodbye. We're leaving and going over here. The reality is, is that this is tragic, and it is, according to the message of Galatians, uh, a temptation that we must not give into, but actually maintain the, the promise of Jesus' unity. So in today's passage, Paul is sort of arguing that if you take that bait to kind of uh, to just fall into that temptation and be like, you know what, I, I, I can't do family with you. I can't embrace you as my sister. I can't, I know you say you call Jesus king. And I know you've been forgiven of your sin because Jesus died for your sin on the cross. And I know that I have just the same equal standing as you do because you were forgiven just like I was forgiven. But even besides all of that, I, I, can't, I can't actually call you sister or I can't devote myself to you in familial love. If you take that bait, Paul says, you're actually missing the gospel entirely. And all it's going to take is just a, a little bit of time and you're going to wind up in a completely different place. You wind up with a community of people that are divined by their social values and not the gospel. And so Jesus says, you can't do it. You got to fight for unity. This is the hill to die on, he says. And this is, how, uh, this is how he makes his point. Again, he's still talking about the Jewish law. It's layered for us because we're not totally familiar with all the nuances of the law. But just think about it like this. In, Jesus, uh, in Paul's day, he was a Jewish man, obviously, but the majority culture in the church of Galatia was these Jewish people. And so because they were Jewish, they're talking about the Jewish law, and it has to do with the unity of the church. And this is what verse 15 says. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. 
Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So again, what he's doing is he's starting by addressing their familial bond. This is the first time that phrase, brothers and sisters, comes up in Galatians. He goes on to talk about it much more as he goes along, but this is the first time it occurs. It's the Greek word adelphoi, and it means sibling, brother, sister. And he's saying, hold up. Like as much as you might want to define yourself differently, as maybe you, like Nicola, maybe you may not want to embrace me as your brother. The problem is that I am united with Christ in the same way that you have been united with Christ. And according to God, who then defines what family is and defines what his family is, he says, you know what? You are brothers. You are connected to each other in this way. We have the same father. We're a part of the same family of origin. We're a part of the same renewed humanity. We've all been forgiven by Jesus. These are the things that unite us. So in other words, of course, there are things that are different about us. There are different ideological things. We're on different socioeconomic uh, spectrums. We are uh, different, like some of you are intellectual. Others of us, maybe not so much. Some of you have advanced degrees. Others of you are maybe just starting school or decided to go a blue collar route or something like that. All of the reality is that we, yes, of course, we are very, very different, but the thing that unites us is far more powerful than the thing that threatens to break us apart. And so the, the defining aspect of, 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 a, of a wise, mature, devoted Christian is someone who is able and eager to maintain unity in the language of Ephesians 4. Eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So this is what it means to be mature in Christ, is to be the kind of people who stick, have a stubbornly loyal commitment to people in the family. Thank you. I agree. Next thing to notice, next thing to notice is Paul gives us this metaphor. He gives us a metaphor. And the metaphor is an everyday example. He says, he's talking about writing a will. So that's what that verse 15, it says, let me take an example. Uh, not, uh, no one can set aside or add to a human covenant. He's talking about the writing of a will. And he's saying that once a will is ratified, no one can throw it out or add to it. It's a legal document that is fully enforceable. So he's saying like, just like that's the case with like a human covenant, a will that you might write um, or whatever. I was gonna suggest you write me into your will, but that was very self-serving and an abuse of power. Um, it's just the things that sometimes pop into my head as I'm talking. <laughs> Don't do that, I'm, not, I'm teasing. Um, so, um, so just like when, when you write a will and it's notarized and it's signed and your legal representation makes sure that it's authorized, it is a legally binding document and it cannot be changed. The same is true when God tells Abraham he's going to bless all of the families of the earth through him. That was the blessing that God had promised Abraham. It wasn't so that Abraham would become great. That was not where the promise stopped. The promise was you're going to become great so that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So this is the promise that we need to anchor ourselves to, and that's exactly what Paul's doing here in, in, in Galatians. So God's covenant with Abraham creates an, um, an unbreakable agreement for everything else that follows. God's covenant with Abraham creates an unbreakable agreement for everything else that follows. So in other words, he's saying uh, God has not given up on that promise that he made, 
And in fact, when it comes to God, when he makes promises, he, he keeps them. So we can trust that when God uh, has made a promise to us that he's going to be trustworthy. He, you can actually uh, trust him with what he said. Now, part of the problem that I've noticed in Western culture as I pastor a group of people from Bend is that a lot of times we have unmet expectations of God. We feel like God owes us something that he hasn't given us or whatever. And normally what that is or what I've noticed as I pick up, and I say this humbly, not as a point of judgment or whatever, but I just see that we're holding God the promises that he hasn't made us. You know what I mean? Like, like the gospel of ease and comfort. God is just here to make your life so flowery and fun and life's going to be great and easy or, or whatever. Like health, wealth, comfort, easy street. Like whatever those promises we've internalized, somehow we've gotten them. I think it's from like cultural appropriation. We grew up in this sort of Judeo-Christian framework where God is a cosmic genie where his, he just is supposed to give us the things that we want in life or whatever, we, we feel like he owes us that. But when you look at the whole of scripture, you recognize that, man, don't hold God to that promise because he didn't really make that promise for you. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. In this life, you will have trouble, you will suffer. But then we don't take God up on the promises that he has given us. The promise he has given you is to be with you always. He said, he is the one who has all authority in heaven, on earth, under the earth. And he said, right after that, I will be with you forever, even until the end. So we're wanting him to to make a promise to us that he hasn't made, but then we're not taking him up on the promise that he did make. In your suffering, you have a comforter. You have a God who's willing to go with you. You also have a future hope and a promise that is well beyond your American dream. Scripture says in Ephesians 3 that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask, think, or imagine. We can imagine some crazy cool stuff. Somebody dreamed up Instagram. Other people dreamed up Star Wars, right? God is able and capable of doing beyond, exceedingly abundantly beyond all of that stuff. Those are trivial examples. Obviously, his promise to you is that he's coming back. We're going to talk about this in a second. So many Christians have almost zero imagination of their future in God's kingdom. Most Christians are afraid of Jesus' return, don't want him to come back. Whereas when my daughter, when she was three years old, we lost our twins, Hope and Brielle, on the day of their birth. About a week later, she was asking us about it. She's asking us about when she's going to be able to be reunited with her sisters. And we said, well, there's going to come a day where Jesus returns and he makes everything right. And she says, well, what is that like? Well, the scripture says the clouds are torn open. And Jesus comes down on a horse and he makes everything, he reconciles all things, everything in heaven and on earth to himself. That's what the scripture says will happen at the end of time. My daughter looked like, literally look, we're driving the car. She looks out the window, looks up at the sky and says, Jesus, do it now. Come down now. Which is the coolest. And now almost once a day, at least once a day, I want to pray outside so that I'm reminded of that kind of a thing. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. The real thing that I'm eagerly hoping for is not that my perfect American dream will just like kind of be ironed out for me here on earth, but that the true dream, the real dream worth putting my hope in is being realized and will one day come. That's my hope. 
Back to Galatians, it says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Okay, so um, we got to get into the technicals a little bit. Modern theologians have made this way more complicated than it really needs to be. I don't want to get over complex or confuse any of us, but I just want to understand what does the scripture mean and how does it really change us? In order to do that, we need to understand three words from that verse uh, that's on the screen behind me, the word Abraham, which is, of course, the one who, is, uh, who God made the promise to, Seed, not seeds, but seed. Again, he's referring to his one family line. He didn't promise Abraham you have multiple family lines. Again, Paul is basically going, hint, hint, we're one family, not multiple, right? That's what he's saying there. And then Christ, the, the, the Christ. This is the other word we need to understand. The word Christ, of course, is, uh, we connect that to Jesus because that's what it, what it is. It's, it's connected to Jesus. However, Christ is this messianic term. It means the anointed one. It's talking about the, 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 the title, but also the messianic vocation of Jesus. That he's actually here to do an important thing and an important work, and that's to, again, bring about the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So in other words, this is what the, the language of Galatians 3 is saying, that God promised Abraham a single family that will bless the world. Not many, single family that will bless the world. And that family consists of the Messiah and his people. So this is, of course, in service to the larger message of this letter that we've been carefully unfolding. You don't have to become culturally Jewish to belong in the family of God. But... Again, the reason why I make all of the particular comments about making sure we understand this correctly is because we also need to apply it to our context, the soil of 21st century Bend, Oregon, and that is you don't have to become culturally American to belong. You don't have to become culturally American. You don't have to become my particular brand of American in order to belong in the family of God. To, to miss that, to require someone to become like you ideologically, ethnically, heritage-wise, culture-wise, uh, to require people to espouse your set of values that are not Jesus and the gospel is to fundamentally miss the point of God's promise altogether. And so he's saying we really, we really cannot, we cannot do that. And again, um, I say none of this to be hypercritical of American Christianity because I definitely don't want to do that. But the reality is that the purpose and the point of the gospel is so much bigger than our local current elections. It matters, but it's so much more than that. God is wanting to unite the world. That's American Christians, Russian Christians, Syrian Christians, Cuban Christians, Brazilian Christians. Christians from every ethnos, every ethnicity of the earth. In case you missed it, a couple weeks ago we talked about this. The closing image of the Bible is every tribe, tongue, and nation shouting out praise to Yahweh. Shouting out praise to God. That's the closing image of the Bible. This is our imminent future. So people don't have to become like me or you to belong. People actually need to trust in Jesus. Jesus says if you accept him, trust in him, then you become a part of the family. 
So verse 17 and 18 say this, and this is kind of the end of all the Bible stuff, and then uh, I just want to unfold a promise for you that I think is important. So verse 17 and 18 say this. What I mean is this. So Paul goes in to describe what he's teaching. Uh, The law, it was introduced 430 years later. It does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So he's contrasting the promise of God with the law. Okay, again, obviously a ton here. Because the dividing line in the first century was the law, that's what Paul's talking about here. The the law keepers versus the non-law keepers. And because the law keepers were saying that Paul had neglected to teach the whole gospel, they said, you know, Paul's okay, but he missed all of this stuff. You also need to obey the law. Paul goes, okay, let's talk about the gospel. We can do that. Let's talk about it. And what he's saying is that the Mosaic law does not overrule the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. Because it was made almost a, a half a millennium after Abraham walked the earth. It was when the Mosaic law came. So the promise had already been, the covenant promise had already been ratified, so to speak. The will was already in full effect. And so when the law came, it didn't nullify or overrule it. It actually was meant to uh, service it in a way. And I'll get into that in a second. So Paul is essentially straightening out the wrong-headed leaders. The ones who are putting dividing lines where God does not put them. The ones who are making people, requiring people to become like them to belong. He's straightening them out. He's saying the promise never changed. God had always intended this plan to bless the world through Abraham's seed. And the law was there to prepare God's people uh, for the Messiah and to ensure that things will go well between us. But it was never intended to replace God's promise. So now that Jesus has come, now that promise is realized, meaning the law has been fulfilled. And now we're just living in the goodness of God's promise. It's coming through. The dividends, if you will, are being paid out. So we receive that promise not through law following, but by faith. Again, very common motif, important theme in this letter is that the righteous will live by faith. But even then, Paul is hearkening back to Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. This is what God has been up to all along. So that's us. We are people of faith. We trust in Jesus. And because we have trusted in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sin and we're accepted into the family and we receive a rich inheritance. We have faith in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus, you receive the promise. So again, what's happening here is we are uh, getting right perspective on all of the different players in this whole covenant relationship. The first one, of course, is God. (laughs) Jesus is the true worldwide Messiah. We see that clearly now through this letter. We also see uh, Abraham clearly. According to Romans chapter 4, he is the father of our faith, meaning that we are now a descendant in that line because we've trusted in Jesus. We see Moses properly. He's like the giver of the law that had a purpose for a time and now has completed its God-given task. And then we also see the proper uh, way, we also see the proper way to see ourselves, which is that we are all one in Christ. Again, the Bible talks about there being one renewed humanity, and there is one body of Christ, First Corinthians 12. So again, to require law following is to believe that the promise is not fulfilled. It's actually a regressive way of looking at the activity of God in the world. 
But now that Jesus is revealed, the promise is fulfilled. And so we don't require law keeping in order to belong. Again, apply that to our context today. We're jumping back and forth from the first century context, which is all about law. That's not our particular temptation. Our temptation is to require people to become like us in the ways that we are in order to belong in the family. So in other words, you don't have to become American to belong. Aren't you glad about that, Allie? <laughs> Allie is very proudly Brazilian, as she should be. To require someone to become like us in order to belong is to suggest that our cultural identity is more important than our kingdom identity. And according to the scripture, it's not. Um, you can read the Bible uh, 30 times over, which I think that you absolutely should. And you'll find that the Bible... Uh, never makes, there's never a promise for God to bless America in the Bible. And, and I, I, that's shocking. It might be shocking and a little bit startling to you. And I don't say that, again, I'm not getting pleasure out of derailing or blowing up your cultural paradigms. What I'm saying is that he made a promise that anyone can belong in the family of God. Americans, Syrians, Russians, Cubans, Brazilians, whomever can belong in the family of God and can receive the promise of God. And so uh, we, he, that's the promise he made. Again, don't hold God to the promise he didn't make. Cling to the promise he did. And that's activated when we trust in Jesus. His promise is activated when we trust in Jesus, which is where we end today, which is where we end. So um, in, uh, buried in the, the, the verses we read at the beginning, there's this important uh, important thing about the promise that we haven't talked about yet in this series, but now you'll begin to see it's a major theme. Verse 18 says that if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the inheritance is what we receive when we trust in Jesus. Inheritance. So I want you to think about what that actually means, okay? This is, again, maybe a churchy word, a cliche word. Maybe you've heard a bit about. But what does it mean that God has given you an inheritance that you believe in the promise? Uh, Romans chapter 8 does a really great job on, uh, showing this to us or teaching this to us. It's a parallel passage. This is what the scripture says. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. I want you to notice how often that word child of God or children of God occurs here in the next couple of verses. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves in comparison to the children so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. So the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Amazing. Now, if we are his children, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Okay, there's, there's more there, but we're, we're going to skip over it just because of time and I, because I've been going majorly off script and we need to wrap. So... He wants us to see us ourselves as children. This is your primary identity. You are a child of God, which means, again, we are sisters and brothers. Chris, you're stuck with me, man. You're stuck with me. I'm your brother. You're, you're my brother. We're brothers and sisters. We're, ch we're all children of God. 
and heirs of the kingdom and heirs of the promise. So if you are an heir of God's promise, then you live into the promise of God. So I want to just wrap up by talking about some of like the disposition or the mindset of the person who's an heir, the person who has a rich inheritance, the person who has received the promise. We're going to talk about what it means to be an heir. Being an heir gives us this shared culture that we have together. So again, we're, we are often struck by how different we are. But as we realize that we've all received the promise of God, we actually realize that there's far more that we have in common than we first thought. So first of all, a, uh, a, a, an heir is marked by several things. It's mar- an heir is first marked by generosity. An heir is marked by generosity. So uh, imagine for a moment that you were an heir to like a massive fortune. This would be a fun like fantasy experiment. Imagine you're an heir to a massive fortune. I actually know a guy who is an heir to a massive fortune. Um, his father is worth like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, he, his dad is also in his 70s. He's the firstborn. And he's been wealthy basically his entire life. And he will be wealthy until the day that he dies. And there's, as you know, as I've just teed up this conversation, you know that there's a lot of different ways this story can go. It could go down a pretty destructive route. I basically think that although there are many different twists and turns my buddy's story could take, there's really only two paths. He can hope in his money. He can hope in his wealth. And that leads someplace. Or he can serve God with it. Now, the Bible warns that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You wind up being owned by your money. You wind up being uh, controlled by it. And I think money makes it, is like a, an amazing thing that can be used for the glory of God, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but it's a terrible master. Just ask your cryptocurrency portfolio this week. It probably tanked. If, uh, if yeah, if I was reading the news right. I don't invest in crypto, but I, was, I read the news. Am, am I right? It tanked? Okay. All right. Thank you for the fact check. In the case of my friend uh, and his dad, man, they leverage everything that they have towards the kingdom of God in some pretty remarkable ways, ways that my little tiny brain won't ever be able to fully wrap my head around. They started a charitable foundation, and they, they've devoted their lives and all of their resources to just like donating their wealth for the good of making disciples and serving kingdom causes. And they do it quietly and humbly. You won't know about it. Um, you won't see their name on a bunch of different things. They're not looking for that kind of glory. They're just doing it. Again, in dollar amounts that my brain does not fully understand. I can't really compute. So an heir to a massive fortune like that, who's wise, what does a wise heir do with their resources? Well, they're not stingy with it. They don't have a scarcity mindset. It's actually the other way around. They're radically generous. I know the people in this room, there are those of you who have lived this in some incredible ways. One example of that, just uh, this week, I was meeting with a newer gentleman to the church. Him and his wife have been coming for a couple months, and they're really cool people. And um, they said, hey, we'd love to get together just one more time. We have something we want to you know, give you. I'm like, okay, sweet. That sounds great. So on Monday, we get together, and they said, hey, we poked our head in the kitchen. We saw that you guys did like a ton of mold removal, but it's, man, it is just like, uh, just, uh, it's completely undone back there. It needs a lot of work. It needs a ton of help, and it does. 
We've been slowly working on the building and on the church, but that's one area we haven't gotten to yet. So I told him a little bit about the vision of where we're going and why we want to build out the kitchen in this beautiful way so that we can host all kinds of different events here and blah, blah, blah. So he said, yeah, we thought you would say that. So here you go. Bang. He hit me with a check for 7,500 bucks, which took my breath away. I didn't have any words to describe like my gratitude and all of that. And I was just like, he's stumbling my way through. I was like, dude, uh, I guess, thank you. Like, this is incredible. We'll use it all for the glory of God, obviously. And he goes, yeah, you know, everything, this is what his response was. I was inarticulately stumbling through my words. And what he did was he was just like, man, everything we have is from God. And we, we, we're just like stewarding us. He's, he's called us so that we would be a blessing. Again, he's connected to the promise. He's a, he's a bro, he's an heir who has received the promise and he's like, yeah, I, 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 we know what we're about. We're, we're gonna celebrate what God has given us and we're gonna give it for, for, for the good of others. So because you are an heir, don't, don't get hung up on money. You don't actually have to be rich in order to apply this principle. Because you are an heir in the kingdom of God, you have a generosity, a for the good of everyone else orientation. Your mindset, your orientation is for the good of everyone else, just like my buddy is and, and my friend who started that foundation. Being an heir in God's kingdom means, that you, means all kinds of things. It means that you have received God's Holy Spirit of power. It means that you have the resources of the kingdom of God. It means that you are secure and that you are safe and that you are protected by the Father. And when you suffer, like uh, Romans 8 says, when you suffer, it is not worthy of being compared to the glory that you will receive in the age to come. You also have the promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. So all of that influences your mindset to the point where you become like these people I've told you about who go, what else can I give away? Who else can I help? Who else can I serve? Who's on the margins of society? Who can I care for? Who can I love? And it's, again, your money, but it's so much more than just that. It's your presence. It's your, it's your presence. It's you. It's your time, it's your energy, it's your talents, it's your spiritual gifts, it's all of it. It's all of it. So you are a gift to others and you're not conserving anymore because of you're afraid of scarcity. You're actually lavishly giving whatever you, whatever you have. And uh, years ago, and actually even to today, you know, God has been teaching our family about this, um, about how it's so much more blessed to give than receive. And we've received so much from you guys, from our church family. We've received so much, but we've found it's so much blessed, more blessed to give than receive. In fact, to the point that we have actually uh, gone back and reworked our family goal. Uh, our family goal, the Rothrock family goal, is we, we want to love Jesus passionately and follow him faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit for the good of everyone else because he's coming back soon. Um, the gospel isn't self-helpy. It's actually for the good of everyone else. So we have oriented our life to say, you know what? It's about giving ourselves away to others. That's the best possible way we could spend our life is by giving our life away to others in every sense of that word. And so we're asking God, what else do you want us to give away? Who else do you want us to serve? How else can we use our time, talent, treasure for the kingdom? So an heir is marked by generosity. An heir is also marked by kingdom vision. Sociologists, they tell us that young men lose motivation when they can't envision an exciting future. Or they haven't been given a compelling mission to give their lives in service to. And maybe you've seen this uh, with a generation of young men, young women too, but it's particularly highlighted in young men. That we don't have an exciting vision for our future. And all of a sudden, all of our motivation for life and purpose in life begins to crumble. 
Many, uh, this, this idea, again, just like some of the others we've been talking about, have colonized the church now. They've infiltrated the church now. So Christianity in the West is suffering from a similar crisis of motivation. Our churches, have, our churches have grown anemic and apathetic because we're looking to the scriptures for little more than therapeutic, individual, first world answers to our solutions to our little, little baby problem, problems. And so because of that, man, the, the church and the power of the church and the power of the scripture and the power of the spirit just begins to fall away because we aren't dreaming high enough. We aren't dreaming high enough. I, I remember about 10 years ago, I was pastoring at a different church and um, I was starting to just come alive for this vision of awakening to the gospel in Oregon because this is my lifelong home and I want to see this place alive with the gospel. And I remember worshiping in this church and I remember seeing uh, everyone hands in pockets, extremely stoic. Again, my family culture, so I'm not necessarily knocking it, but I'm just saying we're just so anemic and apathetic. It was anything in the worship pastor to just get a little bit of volume out of, out of people. Most people were opting to sit. And I just thought to myself, man, if somebody far from God walked in here, what about this would attract them to him? If Jesus has saved us and given us his grace and we have this new hope, but we're like very bored about it, how is that compelling to anyone? It's not. So again, many Christians are, are kind of in this purposeless kind of vacuum and need a compelling vision. So Christians, like I said at the top, fear the return of Jesus, almost have no appreciation for our future in God's kingdom. We're not enslaved to the law, we're enslaved to our tiny visions of God. We're enslaved to a, a, a view of God that is not worthy of being compared to him. But being an heir, man, an heir is convinced and can see what the father is doing and he's all in on it. He's clued into, he knows what his father's about. And he's going, oh yeah, this is way bigger, way greater than anybody even really realizes at this point. You probably remember the story of Jesus, age 12. His family had gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem during one of the annual feasts, and the holiday had ended. And so Joseph and Mary and their whole traveling party went back or started working their way back to Nazareth. And about a day later, they started looking around. They said, wait a second, where's Jesus at? They couldn't find him. And so Mary and Joseph freak out. They run back to Jerusalem. And they find him learning with the scholars in the temple. And they begin to scold him like, dude, where the heck were you, man? We were just worried sick about you. And Jesus gives this response. He says, what do you expect? I have to be about my father's business. He was compelled by this vision. So as an heir, you are compelled by God's vision to renew the world. You don't suffer from lack of purpose. You see God's hand of blessing. You see his heart of love for you. And you want to join him in the reconciliation of everything. See, uh, Romans 8, we didn't read it, but a verse underneath what we just read said that we eagerly anticipate and expect the glory of God that is coming. We are captivated by that vision. And so my calling, my invitation, my challenge to you is to devote yourself to the kingdom of God's advance in this city. Make your mark here. Make your mark here. Don't make it about you. Make it about him. Go all in on Jesus' mission to reconcile all things to himself. 
say this tongue-in-cheek and definitely with no judgment, there, but there have been moments in my tenure as a pastor here in Central Oregon where I've just wanted to grab y'all by the shoulders a little bit and give you a good shake. And what I mean by that is sometimes I wonder, is like, do we really have something better in life to do than devote ourselves to the reconciliation of heaven and earth under Christ? Is there really something better in, on earth than that? Is there something worthy living for other than that? Is Jesus coming on the clouds or not? Has he made you a promise? That he's coming again? If he has, then what are we living for? That's the little gentle, loving shake I want to give you all sometimes. <laughs> so an heir is compelled by that vision. I see what dad is up to. I'm going after it. An heir is also marked by holy confidence. Holy confidence. When I met my wife, I was 20 years old. And what I remember, one of the first things I noticed about Grace is I knew that she knew she was loved. I could see it. You can know things when you're 20. Did you know that? You can know some things when you're 20. And that was just something I saw in her countenance. I could tell. She knew she was loved. She was loved by her clan, her family. She knew she was loved by God. There was something about it. I just knew that. She had a sense of confidence. She had self-worth because she knew that she was cherished. And I was right about that. She's a grounded, steady human being. Not because she doesn't have suffering or challenges in life, but because she knows that she's loved. And so an heir has that kind of a countenance as well. So we live in this toxically anxious culture. We live in a toxically anxious culture. And by all indications from the stuff that I'm reading, that's only ramping up. But you can exist in this toxic system with a ton of peace, with joy in your eyes, and a resiliency in your hope because you know who loves you. Amen. And that produces not just like a sense of good feelings, but it produces an inner daring for something that's bigger than just your life. It produces an inner daring in you. It leads you to this holy confidence. Again, not a confidence in yourself, but in God. We don't actually have to live afraid as though we are an orphan, as though we don't have anyone looking out for us, because we actually do. You actually do. You're safe because of him. Could you imagine just the image of like a prince who has his father or his mother's like entire resources and whole army behind him being afraid? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a picture that's disintegrated, right? A prince is naturally going to have a lot of confidence, not necessarily in his own strength or power, but in the power of the kingdom that's behind him. And that's what we have. You have, I tell my kids all the time, like this is not even a stretch of the biblical language. You are a princess. You are a prince in the family of God. You are an heir in the family of God. And so we have that holy confidence, which again leads us to kingdom authority. So we have kingdom vision, we have generosity, and we have uh, holy confidence. We also have kingdom authority. Knowing that Jesus said right before he went to the cross that, um, that, uh, that we can ask him anything we want in his name, he'll give it to us. Again, don't read that in the gospel of prosperity 
Don't read that from that vantage point. Read it from the vantage point of when you give your life to Jesus. He's saying, hey, seek first the kingdom of God. Everything will be added to you. And so we have that same kind of kingdom authority. We know that the victory has already been won. I started this year uh, devoting myself and outing it to all of you that I am praying for you to become addicted to the presence of God. I was meeting with a guy the last couple of weeks who has a sexual addiction, and this is uh, pretty common amongst, obviously, young men in a culture where pornography is so readily accessible. It kind of blew up his life. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to keep his family, keep his kids, keep his wife. And it was this tragic scenario. Many of you are pretty familiar with this kind of a story. And uh, the first couple times I met with him... uh, I was hopeful because he was afraid of the consequences. He was really motivated. He wanted to win his wife back. He wanted to earn trust back and everything else. But I knew that that was not enough. And so the last time we got together, you know, he's got a counselor, he's got therapist, he's got mentors and peers and stuff like that. So I just say, hey, when we get together, just get ready because we're praying the whole hour, you know. And my thing is I just want to see this dude addicted to the presence of God. And the reality is, is that we get done praying, tears pouring from his eyes, having the spirit of God speaking to him and speaking freedom over him and speaking life over him. He's going, I don't ever want to walk back to that life. I don't, I, I want to have God in my life. So it's not a fear of consequence. He's living in this hopeful expectation that the presence of God is ready and tangible for him. And this is something that you carry with you. That's why, I, that's why I, I'm here. That's why God is still authorizing me as your pastor for the moment. Is because I'm here to teach you to pray. To enjoy the presence of God. Will you join me in praying for the kingdom come? We could go. Um, I have a friend who pastors in Dallas, Texas. And I go, talk to me about your prayer meetings. He goes, oh, you know, yeah. Pastor says, come pray. They, we all come pray. And it's just like baked into the DNA and the culture of the Bible Belt. So listen to the pastor and come and pray. Well, I like like God has called me here for right now to break up hard ground, to break up apathy, anemia, and to say, hey, you know what? We're the kind of people who go after God with that ferocity. And so I want to encourage you to join me in that. Tuesday mornings, 8 to 9. Wednesday mornings, 6.30, 7.30. Thursday evening, 6.30 on into about 8 o'clock. Many more opportunities to come. We were talking about a Friday gathering, talking with my buddy Moses about a Saturday gathering. By the end of this year, I want to have at least 15 hours a week where you can come and pray in the way that I'm telling you right now. Last, second to last. Second to last. Defiant hope. Defiant hope. An heir has defiant hope. The promise of God is unbending. The promise of God is unbending. I'm sure of that. So hope does not disappoint, Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The Holy Spirit seals us and we are assured and we have this hope that sort of defies reality in some cases. And lastly and finally, an heir has loving devotion to the Father. I just want to be with him. I just want to be like him. I want to honor him. So when you love and follow after Jesus, this is what stirs in you. You When you are an heir, this is what 
begins to stir in you. I was talking with a pastor friend who we don't really know each other that well. We've got a lot of mutual friends, um, but there, we have a lot like kind of overlapping in terms of those friends and what we want to do in the future and all of that. And so um, I was meeting with him over Zoom this week and he was like, dang, dude, at the end, he's like, man, we have to keep doing this. I was like, yeah, no, that sounds great. Let's keep Zooming. That sounds great. He's like, no, 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 I, I mean it because I, I can always tell when somebody else is hungry. I can see it, and I can see it in you. I'm like, yeah, I can see that in you too. There's this, there's this hunger that has been awakened in you and in me that we're saying we're, it's only forward from here. It's only, we're just going deeper into the love of God now. We're not, go, we're not wavering. We're only going deeper. So uh, I just want to end, which, man, I really blew my time, you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for not walking out on me for blowing my time. Uh, but we want to we wanna just end by, I was, so I was preparing for this message, I just realized and recognized that there may be some of you who like go, dang, sounds kind of nice, but I feel like I'm orphaned. I feel like I don't have a family. I feel like I don't have a father. Andrew, you seem convinced this guy loves you. I don't have that same assurance. And um, wherever you are today, that's okay. Zero, zero, zero judgment from me. But what we just want to do is open up a little bit of time and space for the Holy Spirit to come to you and actually demonstrate and show you that you have been adopted, that you are adopted into the family of God just like me. There's nothing special or different about me. We are all equal before God, um, especially because of the work of Jesus. But, um, so we just want to invite you to, to like cast aside that sense of being orphaned and instead receive your adoption. So you guys stand with me and let's pray. God, this is the culture you've given us. This is the ethos that you've given us. We are people who are devoted to you and you only. And we come before you, Holy Spirit, and we just invite you to come. And we invite you to begin to do the work that you've started in us. And we pray that you would just continue to fill us. And for those of you who are here and you're like, um... Gosh, I, I, I want what we're talking about here. I want holy confidence. I want a kingdom vision. I want to be a generous type of person. I want to feel like I'm an heir, but I feel instead like I'm an orphan. Um, again, just notice that coming to the surface in your heart. And notice that where God is at in all of this. He's, he's not judging you. He's not mad at you. He's actually just standing opposite you with his arms open wide, just waiting to receive you as his child, as, as, as his child. So Holy Spirit, I pray you come in power right now and you would silence uh, just any doubt and fear and suspend cynicism, God, because we have that too. But in its place, we pray that you would resurrect hope and faith and courage in you. And just begin to keep resurrecting this stuff in us, God. And if I'm talking to you and you're the person I'm referring to or you're like, I feel like an orphan, I just want you to imagine with me 
that the Father is standing opposite you, arms open wide, ready to receive you. And I just wanna challenge you, encourage you to just say yes to that, embrace from him. And just take a step towards him, hold your arms open as well, and just receive his embrace. feels like mystical and out there I get that too but there is something for you on the other side of this kind of trust in him and I think it's beautiful and I know that he is worthy of it and he says that you are loved so I just challenge you encourage you to receive that today